but it's quite interesting, you know, in, um, in terms of like the rules of the game, as you just described. I was considered to be someone who like had won, you know. In, in to, you know, I was on stage. I had enough money to do what I wanted to do. You know, life was good. Uh, and so, and so, it's like, why on earth have you have you jacked all that in to be chasing around after some escaped cows at three o'clock in the morning? I mean, obviously, that's not what I did it for. But that, you know, you, you know, you get the, the general idea. What on earth have you done? Uh, and that gets people's attention. And actually. Uh, that sense of, uh, you know, I don't regret doing the music, it's been, it's been amazing and I would encourage anyone to do the same thing. But, um, but the sense of purpose, you know, like when you get up in the morning and you do hard physical work that's part of a plan that you thought about, that you think is important, there is no better or happier way to spend a day than that. And that's something that just gets so often overlooked in, in this sort of um, age of, of a lot of kind of very superficial pleasure that's quick to come and quick to go. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works, along with deep cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks, and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world in service to life, becoming crew on the Spaceship Earth. Welcome to the podcast. This is Dan. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, means a lot as ever. I hope this finds you well wherever you are on Spaceship Earth right now. So in this episode, I'm in conversation with Andy Cato from Wild Farm Grain and Groove Armada. And so this was a total treat on many fronts, not just because Andy is a fascinating human, but this conversation connects up many of my own deep interests so Andy is one half of music act Groove Armada and started his journey with music in the early 90s um, at the same time that I was also uh, beginning to DJ semi-professionally and uh, and working uh, by day in dance music distribution um, and I still have many of the vinyl uh, promos that Andy and his Groove Armada partner Tom put out in those first few years. Uh, and so while my music career sort of plunged into insignificance, uh, Andy and Tom went on to become uh, massive artists as Groove Armada, releasing over eight albums, touring all over the world, um, having big hits in the charts and will next year celebrate 25 years of making music together. Um, but Andy's story continued to evolve um, when he learned about 
the impacts our industrial food systems were having uh, on both planetary and human health. And that uh, kick-started his personal inquiry and mission into food growing, uh, farm ownership, and his own stark experiences witnessing um, dying soils and the impacts industrial agriculture is having on all life. Um, His experimental nature and curious inquiring mind led him to the conclusion that regenerating soils for both climate and food is an urgent and pressing task for humanity. And he has been developing farming methodologies where plants, animals and soils are all working in kind of deep symbiosis and farmers, uh, bakers, millers, retailers and customers uh, work together to create highly nutritious grains, flowers and uh, products in a value system that that works for everyone. And we cut to 2021 and his venture Wild Farm Grain is, is making loads of noise uh, and beginning to spread from the underground. So um, this was a really wide-ranging conversation. Andy has lived an extraordinary life and his, uh, his knowledge, uh, energy and dedication to building um, new regenerative and community-led food systems is, um, is incredible. And for me, to have, a, to have a conversation which included raving, house music, uh, the symbiosis of plant and animal relationships, soil health, human health, climate action and sourdough was, was basically an absolute treat. I mean, that's, 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 that's a mix for me. So let's cut to it. This is episode 49, the Spaceship Earth podcast with Andy Cato from Wild Farm Grain. Enjoy. Right, Andy, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Thank you very much, mate. It's lovely to be here. Whereabouts are you on uh, Spaceship Earth right now? I'm, uh, I'm about an hour uh, southwest of Toulouse uh, at the farm where I've been living uh, for the last 12 years. And um, yes, yeah, slightly fuzzy headed because we had some some people came walking across the farm yesterday to have a look at this uh, agroforestry sort of edible forest thing we've got going on, which I said, yeah, crack on. I, I was busy. I left them to it. But afterwards, they decided to uh, have a look at the cows who were having a drink in the stable. Or they must have been because the, the people left the stable door open. So uh, um, three o'clock this morning, I heard the sound of cow hooves on front terrace, which is never never a good look. And so uh, between three and uh, three and half five this morning, I was I was rounding up livestock and then went straight from there to have a a COVID vaccine. So the head's a bit fuzzy, but oh wow, know. yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, good combo. Yes. So. I want to dig into the farm, Andy, obviously, um, and the mission there. But before we do that, as is with this podcast, I'd love to, before we get into Wild Farm Grain, um, you know, explore and obviously the amazing mission that you're on now. It'd be awesome just to sort of go back a little bit and just get a bit of uh, that backstory because, you know, you've had a pretty interesting, um, at least from someone that's been 
sort of, you know, I guess following your work as a musician and then into what you're doing now with Wild Farm Grain, a really interesting journey. And I know listeners are always intrigued by, you know, you know, I guess the threads, the threads around people's stories, which sort of lead them into the the work and the pathway that they're on now. Because I first came across you, obviously, with um, Groove Armada. And I remember I was, I was working, well, this is probably like mid-90s, and I was working with... Um, in uh, a rough trade uh, distribution RTM and uh, and Tim Lovely walks in with a bunch of promos uh, with Tummy Touch and it was one of your singles and you know you've obviously gone on to you know spend I guess well 20 odd years if not more as a really successful recording artist um, and you've released like loads of music toured all over the place had big hits and now obviously into the work you're doing now and it would be amazing just to give a just a little bit of that backstory and just particularly i guess the the the, the things that got you to hear some of the threads and seeds maybe that emerged through that journey can we start with that yeah yeah no of course i mean it's it's uh yeah it's been yeah, close on 25 years of groove armada actually it's the 25th year next year but um i mean it, it's 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 such a sort of long span and and, and actually when you go back to the beginning where I was, uh, or the beginning of the kind of the house music bit anyway, um, in the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, when I was I was following my cousin around a fair bit because my cousin was Diggs from DIY, the, the Nottingham Free Party Gang. Diggs and Woosh. Diggs and Woosh, exactly, yeah. Woosh, sadly, no longer with us. But, um, but yeah, so I, I was following them around. It was because it was, it was of, of my cousin, Rick Diggs, that I, I was at places like Castle Morton, you know, the, the stuff of legend and all that. So then that kind of segued into ending up doing parties in what was then a derelict East London with uh, the famous Tim Lovely, who you mentioned, and, and obviously my, uh, my partner in crime, Tom and um, it was in we, you know the, those apartments that uh, were well, at least pre-COVID about a million quid a square foot as far as I could see they, they were just uh, warehouses with holes in the wall you know that we were taking speakers in through so um, and so we were doing these parties there and and it was Tim's suggestion to say uh, to me and Tom why don't you take yourself off for a week do a few tunes to promote the parties and for reasons which are lost in the midst of time we decided to uh Hire a cottage in the North Yorkshire Dales. I, I really have no idea where that idea came from. It's, um, pretty, it's pretty, pretty out there, really, as a recording destination. But we went up there, and and yeah, and, that, and, the, and the music we did that week became Northern Star, and right. uh, and then then robbed the bank, put that on the front of Music Magazine, and Zoe Ball played it on Radio One, and and you know one thing led to another, and, and really like before you know it, we're in Los Angeles uh, with a guy saying, you know. Was, we had to get in the limo to walk to a restaurant which was 100 feet down the road you know no, no walking you know we need to arrive in style amazing and uh yeah and you know being sort of flown into dj gigs in a biplane and told to get out with the with the biggles goggles on to make a make an entrance like a true englishman into these you know crazy la raves and stuff so it was a very swift transition um uh into a fairly surreal period yeah, because I guess exactly you you were right at the kind of start of this, weren't you? In terms of the whole kind of you know from the sort of underground scene and dance music sort of kicking off and becoming you know this enormous beast, uh, and you sort of saw the whole journey, I guess. Yeah, we did, and it's and it's it, it's uh, 
I think the, the great good fortune that I had in all of that is um, that either with with Tom, the other half, or when we started touring as a, a band, we took the slightly mental decision to try and play dance music live rather than do the more standard kind of, you know, synths on stage uh, manoeuvre. And um, that's really not very good for your for your net return on gigs. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, uh, because uh, of the investment required to put it on, to put the show on, I guess. Yeah, it cost a fortune. And it also took a lot of working out, you know, to, to, to be able to make a live band sound fat enough to compete with with the DJs uh, before and after you. So we had some absolute horror shows, absolute horror shows trying to get that right. But when we did, uh, we took a kind of pretty communist um, view of the sort of touring thing and sharing of the of the proceeds. But that meant that whether we were live or whether it was a DJ thing uh, with me and Tom, I've always shared all of these experiences and the uh, incredibly absurd situations that you, you find yourselves in with with you know with my best mates and um and when i see you see a lot of djs seem to carve a pretty lonely furrow you know and it's kind of like social well these days anyway a lot of social um media feeding and you know hotel rooms gig hotel rooms and so on and uh we couldn't have been further than that from for, for, for us you know we we definitely enjoyed life to the full and made sure that wherever we were we got into every last back alley and checked it out you know and uh, i wouldn't change that for the world amazing and i was trying to work this out is it about is it eight albums that you've released and um you put one out quite quite recently as well last year didn't you oh god yeah we did one recently yeah a sort of um kind of a our, our tribute to the the yacht, the yacht rock <laughs> tunes that used to uh, soundtrack the tour bus, but um, yeah, I don't know, mate. To be totally honest, yeah. how many it is? It's definitely been a few, but I know that next year is is um, is year twenty five, and uh, so uh, yeah, it's been a we've we've had a we've had a pretty good stint at it, really. Yeah, wow. So so from that, from twenty five years of of journeying through through music, and now into. Uh, what you're doing with Wild Farm Grain, which we'll we'll get into. But, you know, when people look at that, you know, that's a big, well, it feels like at least a big shift, you know, a very big shift in direction and purpose, I guess, and a mission for you. Can you tell us a little bit about what catalyzed that? What was it? How did it all begin? How did that shift start for you, uh, uh, Andy? Yeah, I mean, it was actually very specific. It was um, coming back from a, from a, a memorable gig, I say memorable. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was in it was in an eastern eastern European country, and it was memorable because um, I, I, it was it was kind of like Eastern Europe's version of Burning Man, and I was DJing a long way off the ground in this kind of like scaffolding version of a of a Versailles uh, palace, and and the image that sticks in my mind was that in front of me there were these fairly unregulated flamethrowers and there was a guy dressed in uh, a kind of gold borat suit flying a microlite <laughs> alarmingly close to these licking flames of which i think he was totally oblivious and right over the heads of sort of ten thousand ravers so it was pretty lawless <laughs> and behind me there was a <laughs> behind me there was a, a gang of um blokes with um, sausage dog balloons on their heads uh, and they were they were getting fully stuck into all of the evening's entertainments. And it turned out that was 
which is probably just as well I can't remember which country it was, given what I'm about to say. But that was the cabinet uh, of the uh, of the country in question. Brilliant. So anyway, it was quite a surreal evening. But on, on the yeah. day the day after, it, 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 I wasn't feeling particularly fresh, as you can imagine. It was a long way home, and and there was um, a magazine on there, an English magazine, uh, in which there was an article about industrial food production, and in I just started reading it, and I was a kind of a occasional organic food buyer at the time because I'd heard a few things about pesticides, but that was kind of it. Uh, and I just started reading this article and I really couldn't believe what I was reading. So I started reading a bit more about it and quite quickly got to a, um, a book on the subject which ended with the line, if you don't like the system, don't depend on it. And that's what got me growing vegetables. Hmm. So that was the that was the start. So what it, so what did that look like at the start? Did you just let go? Did you let go of it, the music, or was it was it just sort of a gradual thing? Or yeah, what was what did what did that look like? This the start of this shift. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, not at all. No, no. So that was very much in tandem with with the music. We were kind of really at our uh, our peak at this time in terms of sort of touring schedules and everything else. So, um, hmm. but yeah, so it just began as a, as a vegetable patch. And uh, by this time I was, I was living in France simply because we had two kids and we wanted to live in the countryside, not in the UK. And because I was away all the time, it had to be someone where we knew someone. And this bit of France is where we knew someone. <laughs> There's nothing more to it than that. But we were, so we were living here and, um, and the neighbors over the hedge were full on, uh, you know, what we call conventional, as in kind of, you know, uh, fertilizer, weed killer based farmers, um, because they'd been sold that miracle. And they, they, these are people who've been hungry when they were younger. And you can see why that miracle was, was easily sold. But maybe we can maybe come back to that later on. But they're lovely, lovely people, totally self reliant. And, um, and, and so they, they uh, got me started with a with a vegetable patch. And it didn't get off to a, a brilliant start. But Really, all that was required was, um, I just remember absolutely like it was yesterday when I sowed my first uh, seeds and you put these tiny little things in the, in the, in the, in the potting uh, compost and I, I came back and saw that they'd sprouted and then six weeks later I was eating them, the, this amazing food. And uh, it was so, it sounds so simple, but it was such a transformational thing. I, I, I would just, my first thought was like, why is not the fir- this the first thing we do at school? This should be the v- day one at school. Uh, and from that moment on, it was just a subject that I, I've got deeper and deeper into. And the more you find out, the more concerning the current situation becomes. Yeah. Yeah, right. Once you've uh, once you lifted the lid and had a look, it's pretty hard to let go of that. And uh, yeah. I guess the... Uh, the inquiry begins. Um, so you're starting to grow veg, and then where did the interest with wheat? How did you? How did that come about? Um, you know, tell us a bit more about how this evolved, and then what got you um, looking, I guess, specifically into wheat production. Well, my, my first experience of wheat was um, uh, was a particularly itchy one because I decided to try growing some wheat old school and harvesting it with a scythe. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, uh, and this because I was kind of on the sort of self-sufficiency drive at the time. All right. And uh, I can tell you what, that, well, first of all, people were made of sterner stuff back then, and the people who got the real tough job uh, were the women because it's gathering it up into, uh, into bunches 
is absolute murder because you have to do it when it's hot and dry. Mm. So you either put a long sleeve thing on and you die of heat stroke <laughs> or you get a short sleeve thing on and your skin becomes a sea of red welts. Oh, so so when you look at those idyllic looking photos of, of people uh, doing the, the manual harvest, you should try it before you, you get too carried away with how, how idyllic it was. <laughs> but that was... Uh, but that was just kind of a passing acquaintance with the wheat. But the, the wheat thing really came once I decided uh, that uh, the growing thing was what I wanted to do, f- you know, for the rest of my life. And that right. once you'd realised how critical it is that we find new ways forward yeah. on, uh, in terms of the way we farm, nothing else kind of feels particularly important. Uh-huh. And so I took the... S- sorry, gone. Yeah. No, I guess I'm just saying on that you know what was the revelation for you i guess you know more and more folks they're they're hearing about industrial ag you know they're watching programming they're hearing about the depletion of soils they're starting to join more dots you know but you know if you're really immersed in stuff you're kind of like you know exploring regenerative agriculture and all this stuff but can you unpack it a little bit for for listeners um, you know, what are the fundamental flaws in what's become this dominant way of food production? And what was it then that particularly got you to kind of look at wheat in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, um, part one of that is um, it's, it's a, 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 at the same time, it's, it's, it's very complicated and very simple. But I mean, the, 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 the simple um, uh, response to that is that... Um, that soil is is the basis of all life on Earth. Uh, it's the uh, it, the proper proper functioning soil is the only way only scenario under which we can have nutrient dense food and uh, nutrient dense food of the type that we were meant to eat, and which is fundamental uh, to us being able to to get the amino acids uh, and micronutrients absolutely essential to the proper functioning of our bodies and the public health crisis that we're faced with is a reflection of the fact that that has all gone wrong and that's gone wrong actually due to things which to a certain degree at the very beginning were done with the best of intentions and it was uh, uh, people you know scientists looking at people who were really struggling um, uh, to sustain themselves because Actually, the the soil had already been heavily degraded through, through through cultivation because every time we disturb soil, we let in oxygen, and so carbon, which is the soil's fertility, becomes CO two and becomes a problem rather than a rather than a solution. Uh, and so, in response to to seeing people suffering, uh, you know, came up with the idea that we could synthesize the main ingredients of plant nutrition and make fertilizers. Um, to do that and that was combined with the fact that after World War II there was loads of oil kicking around which was required for this process to work Uh, and bingo you know uh, and initially it does look miraculous Uh, uh, but unfortunately the the long-term consequences of effectively bypassing and killing off the soil food web are profound uh, and um, we're seeing those today, uh, both in terms of uh, of public health, in terms of uh, huge ecological uh, declines, and of course in the fact that a third, if not more, of all man-made CO2 has come from the soil, which should be uh, and could be, again, a huge carbon sink. 
So uh, yeah, we've got ourselves in a in, in a pretty dire set of circumstances, and um, and yet, actually, the speed at which nature comes back still. Uh, having seen that at first hand, if you give it half a chance, is is amazing and a source of great hope. Yeah, and I guess there's also, you know, uh, as a sort of global species, we've become massively dependent on, you know, a, a handful of grains as well, right? You know, uh, with um, with wheat being um, wheat being one of them. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, that, you know, we've gone from eating, I think, they, what is it, they, they, I can't remember how many noughts, whether it was 5,000 or 50,000, but the, the number of uh, plant remains found in, um, uh, amongst, you know, nomadic, uh, our nomadic ancestors is just absolutely vast. And as you say, I think it's something like 85% or even higher than that of, of products in the supermarket are made from, are made from five, five ingredients, which is... Um, in itself something that needs sorting out yeah totally i guess the soil is you know on one hand obviously you know she said it's it's where life is it's where it happens and it's it's funny i've been you know i've been chatting um chatting recently to the writer uh, jay griffiths about about this and she writes a lot about our relationship to soil and just how we've talked you know how we taught the language of soil if you if you like the way we've talked about it in the specific in the last few hundred years is something that's you know below us almost you know it's almost like it's because it's you know it's below our feet it's almost in in many ways there's a sense that it's 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 disconnect we've disconnected ourselves um from that which is where life is created you know it's where it happens you know <laughs> no, no soil no life um but there's some sort of perception of it almost that it's you know like we I tend to look at things, you know, maybe as like like dirt, you know, and obviously that's shifting, right? You know, we're seeing this conversation around soil and soil health and human health. It's kind of coming, um, but it's it's such an interesting time, isn't it? Because you've got that dynamic of like, you know, th- this is where life happens, and then you've got what it is that we're putting into ourselves, you know, not just not just how we've been treating the soil, but obviously, you know, like you say, the processes and the interventions and the chemicals and all the things that we've been kind of throwing into the mix as well you know the destruction of the soil in 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 many ways is is being mirrored by you know the the breakdown of human health and physical health and all these things that are coming from you know because i sort of geeked out about this in in my own experiences you know getting into bread you know by making bread and was just horrified again like you know what is such a simple you know beautiful thing that's sort of been um you know, bastardized through industrial processes. So yeah, I don't know. I'm uh, on a bit of a on a bit of a bramble here, but it's um, it's interesting that there are these these two elements, you know, to what um, to what you're looking at here, and, and sort of health of the, the sort of non-human ecosystems, but then obviously, you know, the health of um, of the human that's you know that's intimately connected to it through through what is you know what it is that we're cultivating and and feeding ourselves with yeah uh yeah well i mean well just as as what you just say there made me think about there's an amazing guy called albert howard uh uh, who was writing about 150 160 years ago now and if 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 anyone's going to read one book about what we're talking about i always recommend his book uh, the an agricultural testament Mm-hmm. Uh, extraordinary man, but uh, I won't go into the, all the ins and outs of it. I just recommend that anyone reads it. It's a fascinating book. But one thing that he mentions in there, which you reminded me of, was that we've known about this for so long. 
because he did a study of the 1930s uh, or pre-World War II, um, what do you call it, draft, you know, when, when soldiers were were signed up for the, mm. for the army. Mm. And they had to do all these, go through all these fitness and health tests. And then he did a graph, it's in the book actually, where he, he correlates uh, their health and uh, outcomes or analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he, he makes a... A graph between that and the state of the soils in the regions that they came from, and obviously bear in mind then food supplies were a little more localized. So, so sure. you know, the people were eating, um, you know, products largely from from closer to home. Mm-hmm. And when you put the two things on a graph, it's 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 parallel lines, which is absolutely right. fascinating. And um, and more recently, of course. You know, when you you look at the the moment from which there's been a widespread use of use of glyphosate mm-hmm. uh, and the impact that has on the on the shitty mark pathway in plants, which is is which is what allows them to make the amino acids that we can't make ourselves and that we need from plants to build all of our proteins. Uh, and you and you look at the widespread use of that and and compare it to uh, various. Um, uh, things from you know for autism to Parkinson's to dementia and various cancers and mm. stuff and there's a very persuasive line on that graph too you know so uh, it's kind of unsurprising that our bodies evolved in symbiosis with with plants and animals uh, uh, all uh, of in turn involved uh, in symbiosis with this life force which is the soil mm. and when that breaks down we're part of that system and so when we declare war on that system, we declare war on ourselves. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that sounds that sounds like a must read. I'll I'll, I'll link to that in the <clears throat> in the show notes as well. So I guess um, you know, there's there's sort of multiple ways you know you're you're becoming aware of you know uh, this kind of you know what the impacts are now of you know years of this sort of industrialized way of thinking about food production and the relationship to farming and soils and there's sort of multiple ways that you can you can explore this so so yeah for you it's it's been wheat and 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 a way of farming and a way of a way of approaching this so yeah i guess like how did that how did that become the thing for you well, actually, the well, when, well, the first thing that happened was after doing vegetables uh, for from a few years and get to the point of selling them uh, in the local market, and then deciding that I wanted to take the the plunge. I'm doing this retrospectively absolutely insane decision to sell my publishing rights and use that to to guarantee a loan to buy a farm in France. Um, what happened when I after I did that was catastrophic. Uh, everything went went wrong. I was totally overwhelmed by the amount of information to take on board. The fact that I'm not a mechanic, and a lot of farming's about being a mechanic. I mean, there was just it was a tsunami wave of information from grain cleaners to silos to tractor engines to irrigation systems. It was it was horrific, and lots of people circling around me saying, you know, if you don't plow, you're going to lose control of the fields to the weeds. You know, you, you if you go organic, you're mad. You need to use herbicides, all this stuff. Anyway, what happened was uh, that I'd actually bought a farm with with soil that was been totally destroyed. It, it, after 80 years of maize production, it had 0.5% organic matter. You know, a good percentage would be around sort of 5 or 6, and anything under 1% is considered to be non-functional. 
and um and so i <laughs> you bought a non-functional farm yeah but uh, yeah put the, bet the family silver on a non-functional farm nice one <laughs> um and so 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 what what happened when i started trying to grow uh, organically in that system is that what nature kept doing was sending out the plants that it it, it requires to, to save the day. These are ones that can grow in really low fertility situations and begin a, a, a re-establishment of fertility, which ultimately, if you left it to its own devices, would culminate in the forest, in most places in Europe anyway. Uh, and those plants are things like dock leaves and thistles, which of course is what everyone wants to get rid of. So you just get trapped in this horrific loop where you're you're trying to get rid of these these dock leaves and thistles and similarly invasive plants. But every time you cultivate to try and do that, you're, you're losing what little organic matter you've got left and distort, destroying the soil even more. And so nature's response is to send even more of them out there, you know, and, uh, and, and you're under a lot, I was under a lot of financial pressure and I just kind of hit the buffers. It was, it was a terrible, terrible time. And it was actually just at the point where I was about to have to accept defeat and try and sell it to someone that I came across this Albert Howard book. And that just changed the lens completely. And um, uh, and uh, and having read that, I said to my, my poor and long-suffering wife, look, you know, I know we're kind of in the, in the shit here, but before I give up, I want to try it like Albert says. And uh, the first 10 of successful... Uh, farming for him is you've got to have plants and animals together that's what nature does and when you separate them you take one beautiful solution and you create two problems um and so i uh last throw of the dice was to get uh, in a herd of of cows and so a lot of the fields down to diverse pastures full of you know 40 50 different species and start mob grazing mob grazing is when you kind of copy the the movement of the old herds that used to Across the the plains before we arrive, so you get short bursts of very intensive grazing, and then they move and, on, um, right? It's like a stimulation as well, sort of because you're. I mean, you're talking about a sort of sort of symbiosis, right? That's that's what's that's what sort of what's going on, isn't it? It's a sort of deep, complex relationship between the animals and the- very deep complex relationship, and, and and you know they evolve together. Grass and grass eaters uh, evolve together. Uh, and and that relationship is what led to the fact that you know when you when you look at the great agricultural soils that have sustained us over the last uh, few centuries, that thick black earth that was there when we first turned it over was created by the grazing impact of of these big herds of herbivores. <clears throat> and if you start doing that again, but I have to do have to specify that it's that specific type of grazing and overgrazing can be very destructive, of course, but that specific type of grazing, um, the effects of it and the speed of the effects of it are are amazing. And so having put that in place, whilst at the same time uh, pursuing other uh, other experiments on the bits of the farm, you, you, I got to a point where there's a fork in the road, basically. And from the moment that you say, we've got a problem here with these, with these farm chemicals or, or soil erosion or whatever, Either you turn left and you say, we must stop touching the soil. Uh, and so we're going to go to a kind of no-till farming where we don't disturb the soil. But that is generally based on glyphosate uh, to deal with the weeds. And that's what allows you to not disturb the soil. And glyphosate, for the reasons we talked about before, for me, was a no-no. 
or yeah. you turn right and say we've got to stop using these chemicals we've got to go organic but a lot of organic farming uh tends to be based around a lot of soil cultivation so you 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 get rid of the pesticides and the fungicides and herbicides which is great but you're you're in danger if you're not careful of doing excessive soil cultivation and 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 exacerbating the soil problem and so the question i was was faced with is what's in between those two things how can we how can we do uh, the best of both worlds and um and and having seen the the impact of the cows and the pastures um i was i was in in a, in a, in a in the old sort of better end of uh, of organic agriculture you'd have a pasture for four or five years you'd then plow it do two or three years of cereals to make the use of all that good stuff you built up and then put it back down to pasture again mm. but when i had these pastures going and saw how quickly things were changing i was just desperate not to do that mm. i just really didn't want to yeah, turn it all upside sure. down again and that's what led me on this kind of obsessional quest to find out how we could combine uh, annual grains with with perennial pastures yeah so you were talking about kind of speed of recovery you know or how quickly you know nature can respond to that you know bringing back like you say the the cattle but obviously working on this this mob grazing logic but can you give us a sense of sort of you know what does that actually look like in in time because you went from like you said, you're sort of, it looked like the farm. It sounds like you were, you're on your knees almost. So um, how quickly did you start to see that? And, you know, what what, what did what did that look like? Uh, well, it was, it's remarkable. I mean, because, yeah, I was definitely on my knees. In fact, in fact the, the, uh, the low point was when I had this crop of soybeans going and, uh, and soybean seed is expensive. And I had to harvest this crop of soybeans because it was really, I was really, uh, yeah, well, as you said, on my knees. And, uh, and and this there's a type of weed called datura down here, D A T U R A, and it's highly toxic. And if you get any of that in your uh, in your soil bean, uh, beans, it can't be sold for human food, and so it, it halves its price basically. Right. So I saw these weeds starting to come through, and basically, like any uh, weed, um, they're they're just a they're just a, a, an indicator that things are out of whack which they definitely were at my farm. And so I saw one of them, and I went and pulled it up, and then the next day there was 10. I pulled them up. Then there was 100, and then there was 1,000. And then, then they were just all over the field, this plague. Oh, and um, and so I said to the neighbour, like, what do I do about this? And he said, I oh, need to speak to so-and-so up the road on the hill there. He's got this gadget. And basically his gadget was, if you imagine, five flymo blades, exposed blades on a bar in front of the tractor, and the idea is that you drive through your crop higher than the soybeans, but cutting off the tops of these datura weeds, the idea being that they don't set seed. Yeah, bonkers. And so if you imagine like 35 degrees, you've got five flymos on the go, goggles on, and they kind of got to keep your mouth shut because there's debris going <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and um, and, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's noisy as hell, and it's just a sort of dust bowl, and it was just horrific. Oh, I did a couple of hours of it and then just realised the total futility mm. of, of what I was doing because the response of any plant, if you cut the, the flowers off, is it'll make some more, right. maybe slightly fewer. Um, and, um, uh, and yeah, and just sort of ke came back to this thing that I've been reading now by Howard. There's like, there are any number of, of what, of seeds of different plants, call them weeds or whatever at any one time. And what you need to do is create conditions in which they don't need to grow. 
which sounds kind of utopian. But going back to this is the answer to your question is that there was a field that was literally back to back thistles because they just spread and spread and spread. And, I, and a big field, like 10 football pitches. And I sowed that down to uh, pasture as best as I could amongst the, the thistles. And some of it got away, some of it didn't. But enough of it got away for me to start grazing it. And within a couple of passes, a year later, I stood in that field and there wasn't one visible thistle. And that's kind of amazing. And then so you realise... So what's, what's, what's going on there? Like, you know, what's what's behind that? How does how does that happen? What's happened there? Well, what's happened there is that the, the different... Uh, Plants in that pasture have done different things. So the the, the, the legume plants will have um, fixed nitrogen from the air and put it in the soil, so increased available available nitrogen, which then allows other plants and grasses to 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 flourish, and then start decompacting the soil and opening that up and feeding the soil bacteria and just basically starting the uh, on all of that. You know. Um, helped by the the bacterial life in uh the yeah. brought by the grazing of the cows and so you're you're very quickly it's like it's like putting the your starter levan in your dough ah. you know you very quickly s- start to recolonize the bacterial and fungal mm. life uh, and as soon as you do that you're you're moving the conditions up a notch on the dial to the point where thistles aren't needed anymore because those real critical low fertility, let's try and save our skin settings mm-hmm. uh, are no longer the case. Uh, and it's just to see that theoretical idea or actual idea, as I realized, become reality at so fast at such scale. Uh, well, it, it literally brought me to tears. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. And, um, amazing. And, and actually, goes back to what I was saying before, gives me source of a huge optimism in all this because actually. There's so many gains to be had yeah. on degraded soils. That is the one <laughs> upside of our predicament. Wow. Yeah, my head is my head's trying to. Um, uh, I've got to the thistles, and, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, what? Why have they stopped appearing? Like, what's what's happening? You know, where the thistle is no longer able to spread and and find its way into this? Is is it because the conditions have have shifted? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I don't know the exact mechanism, but in the same way that you will see, you will see clumps of, of nettles, for example, in very particular places, yeah. you know. Yeah, I've got them uh, in, my, that, in my garden. Yeah, and, that, and that's, that's... All in the same place. Yeah, and that, that's, that's because of the, of the soil conditions uh, in that spot. Uh, and so um, there's a process going on whereby... Uh, the seeds of or, or, or rootstock or whatever it is of particular plants are, are monitoring the situation uh, in a chemical fashion, obviously, and they go when it's their time to go. Amazing. Uh, and um, you know, you can you can uh, see that. I mean, Doctors is another great example. Well, any any of these plants is going through the same process, this sort of watching and waiting process. And yeah, you know, I don't know exactly how that works, but <laughs> this is a thing that that comes up again and again. In that, well, there's, a, there's an American soil scientist lady, can't remember her name, but she was saying last week that 10 years ago she thought she knew how 1% of uh, soil life worked. And after 10 years of better and better techniques and microscopes, 
she now thinks she might know how much how one tenth of one percent works. <laughs> love it, love uh, which that's uh, kind of what we need to know, really. <laughs> and the thing is that we don't know how all this stuff. It, it's operating on level of complexity, which is which is just breathtaking. But what we do know is, which is pretty simple, is what all of this stuff in the soil needs in order to function in its beautiful completeness, and that's air, water, shelter, and food same as us mm. and so rather than getting kind of obsessed with breaking everything down in our reductionist way to saying it's a and b and therefore that must be c just like that we don't know what's going on here but we do know how to make it work well so let's do that yeah love that it's like you know yeah we're just moving into service we're creating the conditions and we're trusting the complexity and all that you know intelligence and saying you know we know what supports this ability to flourish and we know what impacts that that ability to do that um yeah love it i love the not knowing element you know again it's really sort of countercultural to the sort of command and control logic that we've been sort of brought up with over you know the last few decades there's um there's something really interesting about yeah that sort of humbleness of of not knowing i think humbleness is the word and it's something that we're we're not very good at and something that going out of the sort of pomp and circumstance of, you know, DJ Poos and all the rest of it to being in the middle of these inexplicably beautiful and mysterious processes is a really humbling thing. Wow. Amazing. So so this this marks the marks the shift then. And and so tell tell us about that. What was the you know what was the birth then of, of wild farm grains let's get into that you know you've gone from this kind of pretty traumatic uh reality of, of what you've invested in you know this farm and the reality of the land and the soil and, and what was going on for you and then you you had these breakthroughs it seems and so so yeah how did things evolve from there where did where did this mission really cement itself yeah, well, the, I mean, the the evolution it took towards the grain thing, it came from that that, that sort of stand, standing in front of these pastures which had worked such wonders um, and thinking like, well, how can we, how can I just, I need to harvest some some grains here, but how can I do that without turning this all upside down? And and, and one of the, the great stumbling blocks that we're faced with when you're trying to do um, uh, systems of farming in which you, you you let natural systems run their course is that the vast majority of varieties and of cereals, vegetables, whatever that we have available now are ones that were that have been adapted to flourish when they're fed with chemicals and propped up with pesticides, mm-hmm. uh, and we've got very few varieties. Um, where, where, which are actually retain their original genetics of being able to compete because ultimately all of these were wildflowers at one point and they could just get on with it and compete like like the wildflowers that we see today. And one field where that's less the case, thanks to, there's a guy down here called Jean-Francois Berthelot and there's a guy, his English equivalent is a guy called John Letts, uh, Andrew Forbes, uh, lots of people in different countries around the world who have taken it upon themselves to multiply and preserve these old grain varieties, which mm-hmm. have this competitive capacity. So um, from my, my start, my sort of move towards wheat was because that was what um, seemed to be the most promising area in which there might be varieties competitive enough to kind of get away with basically whacking them into grass and 
and hoping for the best, which is <laughs> which yeah. is where I started because yeah. I was I was you know saying to some kids who came to the to the farm on on a farm visit yeah you know the, these old wheats you know that were, they were found by mankind growing in the pastures of the fertile crescent and selected because of their nice tasty big seeds and after saying that I was thinking well hang on if they if they grew in pastures then can they grow in growing pastures now and so that led to a whole mm. load of experiments which I'd. I won't bore you with the details because there were far more failures than successes, but <laughs> eventually got to a system where this combination of, of um, annual crops in perennial pastures was working. And then it was struck by the next problem, which is that the only measure of success in, uh, in farming, mainstream farming, is by weight. It's quite shocking when you come into the agricultural world from the outside, is that no one's talking about nutritional... yield. Yeah, yeah, how many tons? Not not what's in it, but just how many tons have you got of it? And so if you're doing a system where you're making things that are nutrient dense but there's less of it, you can't make a living by selling that into the existing system. So you're forced down a road of adding value, which in the first instance I thought, well, I'll sell flour. And then when no one wants to buy the flour, <laughs> I started making bread. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and um, well, I'll stop there because then the wild farm thing is kind of after that, really. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's opening up all all kinds of uh, of of things for me. Have you um have you read the One Straw Revolution? Have you read that? Brilliant, but yeah, that was one of my early inspirations. Yeah, because you know, as you were as you were talking, it was making me think a little bit of that as well. You know, it's kind of. It's kind of spirit, I guess, of how we're how we're sort of looking at the land, I guess, and our and our relationship to it. And it seems seems to me, again, anyway, sort of sort of like this re- idea of resisting. It's probably simplifying things here a bit, but it almost feels to me like you know the once for revolution. A lot of a lot of my take out was was resisting the urge to to meddle and make yeah. interventions and to really try and trust these these natural processes yeah no i, I think that's spot on he, he's also a guy who who was a you know a, a crop researcher realized the futility of reductionist thinking when you apply that to such a complex unfathomable system so he was like studying a particular fungus on a particular wheat variety and realized that looking at that in isolation is just ludicrous really and um and he applied that principle as you say of not meddling with enormous courage when he went back to his father's farm and he was actually doing a version of the same thing he was growing rice and wheat into a, a permanent crop of clover, clover the, the one th- yeah the one thing that he had on his side which is significant is that because it was an old rice paddy uh, once a year he could he could flood it and that did allow him to keep a check on on, on weeds if well i hesitate to call them weeds but plants that we don't want there at that time <laughs> i should probably say yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll dive into the into the bread in a sec. But again, just for just for li- listeners, give us give us a sense. Uh, so this this method, like just a simple sense, because I think people have, you know, I think people have this image of wheat production, and they imagine you know fields being ploughed and uh, furrowed, and you know wheat being planted, and you know this method you're speaking to, like you say, you know you're cultivating within lots of other plants, right? And you're seeding this wheat within meadows almost, I I guess. Um, 
So yeah, tell us yeah. tell us a little bit about that, and then you're bringing animals in to move across the land as well. And yeah, I'm just trying to you know give people a little bit of a sense of of, of what it looks like and you know how it kind of works. Yeah, well, that way, well, it's, it's exactly what you said. So if you, you imagine that you've got yeah, imagine a, a nice diverse meadow or, or pasture with lots of things going on in it, and what you would do is um, use your animals to to graze all that down. Uh, really tight sometime in the autumn and then uh, I've tried various different methods but the, the, the fundamental principle is that you 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 create little s- slots within that into which you can sow uh, your, your wheat seeds which because it's a time of year when all those pasture plants are kind of coming to the end of their cycle uh, the wheat can quite easily get the jump at that stage uh, over, over its competition and get the roots down and, and get itself sorted and then after that, it's just simply kind of remembering that the, the that wheat is a grass, and uh, and so you can treat it like other grasses. So uh, up to a point, uh, which is the point where, because what happens is the the earring wheat begins underground and comes up through the stalk until eventually it becomes visible. And there's um up until the point where it's about an inch off the ground. Uh, inside the stalk, you can't see it, but it's in there. If you open it up with a razor blade, you can see it. Uh, but up until that point, you can eat the wheat, uh, you can graze the wheat down, or you could even mow it down if you wanted to. But and, and it would, and the wheat will just come back, you know, just like grass does. And so, what what that means is that you can, and again, there's nothing new in this. Actually, you know, we systematically grazed winter cereals in the past uh, because it makes them tiller which in other words makes them spread out a bit more and make more grain heads and it also means that the the leaves are less susceptible to getting uh, any disease during the winter months because because they're not there Uh, so there's nothing new in this but if you time it right then with these older varieties um, uh, in the spring if you graze it one last time just before it's that critical moment when you can't do it anymore then because the wheat is an annual plant and these older wheats grow very tall, it just gets up above the grass and beats it. Um, and so at its, at its, uh, when I was doing it in France initially, that's how it was working. And then as we've adapted it now to be um, for, for, you know, for broad acre kind of big cereal farms, we've actually got a slightly different method where we use um, um, mini mowers to mow the grass between the wheat rows just to give a bit of extra security about controlling the the understory of grass pre-harvest. Amazing. So going to this um, quality quantity piece, because like you're saying, it seems like you're saying that this whole question of yield and how do you create, I guess, you know, a business model around what you're doing. So is this, is there a, a sense that, you then got into actually like creating products. Is is that where the thing came from? This sort of breakthrough. Yeah. Well, what, what, in France, it was very uh, well organic. No pun intended. E- evolution. <laughs> uh, but um, but yes, yeah, so I, I made the flour. Uh, but you know, lo- locally, I, w- I wasn't able to sell that because there is less gluten in in some of these older varieties, and so it didn't. You need to make bread in a slightly different way. It's not particularly hard. It just needs to be done slightly differently. So I was forced into making bread, and then uh, to to sell the bread um, into shops which already have bread suppliers. Of course, I was obliged mm-hmm. to explain why people should eat this one, you know, and that got me into communicating about 
soil and how all nutrition begins there and and all the kinds of things we've been talking about and that 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 went quite well it took a while but we ended up Mm. um, with uh, people taking over from me on on the on the baking front we ended up supplying lots of the local schools and then we ended up with a farm shop in the local town and Mm. Uh, and yeah, all based around a lot of communication about the things that I'd, I'd discovered on this on this journey. Yeah. Uh, but then the wild farm thing was was when when uh, my friends Ed, George, and others came over, uh, and I would just tell them about the stuff I was finding out about, mm. and uh, and how we could change so many things if we if we if we change the way that we treat our soils. It, it, by talking to them about it, it became clear that. It seemed to me, at least in my experience, that there were there was two big breaks to breaks that were going to hold us back. And one was on a farming side, where, speaking from my local experience here, you know, farmers are operating in very very tough conditions because they're in they're in a, a downward death spiral in terms of soil health. Uh, they they're often quite indebted. They're under enormous cultural pressure to do as things as they've been done. They're under enormous commercial pressure from people coming to sell them all the bits, chemicals and seeds and, and this and that and the other. And um, if we expect those people on uh, masse to, on top of all the shit they've got to deal with already, totally turn their preconceived ideas on their on their head, take a mm. huge amount of risk, buy a whole new set of gear and then set up a bakery, it's never <laughs> going to happen. So, yeah. um, so we need to be able to say to farmers, at least in the first instance, here's a simple tested method uh, of switching to a different way of growing things uh, and, and we can help you with the gear and we can help you get it going. Um, uh, and crucially, we will pay you a good enough price for your wheat uh, that even though you're going to grow less of it, you're going to make far more money doing this than doing what you're doing now. And that's crucial. Mm. And uh, and but that can only work, and this is the other bit of what we kind of realise collectively. That can only work if, on the other hand, we go and explain to uh, consumers everything that we're talking about and saying, "Look, if you're worried about ecological meltdown and climate change and all the rest of it, uh, uh, and you're worried that you can't do anything about it, well, actually, you can." Because if you buy food that come from these carbon positive, ecologically positive farming systems, you've become an activist. And so this loaf might cost 10p more, but here's why. And by choosing this loaf, you've now become part of the solution. So it's a, it's a really nice, empowering message. And by joining those two things up, the hope is that we can, we can sort of drive change pretty fast because we need to do things pretty fast from where we are at the moment. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Um, this this system that you're sort of talking about is is super interesting. And when you look at um, when you look at wild farm grain and and you know the way that you're talking about what you're doing, it's very clear that you know you're you're talking about a sort of collective at least that's how how it's coming across it feels like your work is speaking to millers and 
bakers and uh, retailers and, and customers and you know it, it feels like that's that's quite key to what you're what you're trying to do and can you can you tell us a bit about about that and how's how's that been shaping up what's that like you know you've intentionally been trying to cultivate that by the by the looks of things yeah i think i think because you know the version of of sort of a regenerative future if you like that that i've got going down here you know we, we we ended up with eight people being employed on a hundred hectare farm you know which is which would usually employ about 0.7 of a person in a, in a conventional setting so it's been a hugely positive thing but i just think that given the the, the required speed of change that's required um we can't wait for this to be for our countryside to get refashioned into a series of little farms doing things like this because however much we we might complain about it the societal structures and a whole load of things about way things are set up from ownership to whatever uh, and that's a legitimate discussion but right now we are where we are so we need something that works within the existing setup because we haven't got any time left and so that means that in order to to have ecological regeneration and then, and after we've regenerated sustainability, we we need to have financial stability. So uh, we can only do this thing if we can build up uh, an ecosystem. Is a nice word for it um, of people who are all getting properly paid for the work that they're doing, and we're making sure that anyone who isn't contributing proper work to this field to plate chain is not in this value chain anymore because that's what means that the farmer gets properly paid, the miller gets properly paid, everyone gets properly paid, and the consumer can participate in this uh, without having to pay stupid money for a loaf of bread, you know. And so um, so we need to build the ecosystem for two reasons. One uh, it's, uh, is so that all these we can get the right participants to build this field-to-plate chain in a really efficient way so that we can operate in a way where this is not food for the rich, this is an everyman's choice. And we also need to build a, a, an ecosystem because there's a large piece of education that needs to go on there, not in a patronizing way. I knew nothing about all this stuff. And, and why would most people know anything about all this stuff? You know, it's coming, as you say, it's coming. But there's a there's a lot that needs to be explained. And the, uh, and I I think that in the in the midst of all this anxiety and worry, there's a need to touch as many people as we can to communicate the message, which is you can be part of the solution from tomorrow because ultimately power rests with the people who who um, who buy things, you know, and those three times a day when you feed yourselves are three times a day where you can push things in the right direction. And, that, you know, it's a great message of, of hope, but we need to communicate that and we need as many people on board to do that as possible. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's it. I mean, I think generally, you know, people want to do the right thing. Uh, but these systems that have been built around us have removed most of us, you know, massively from, from how food is cultivated, the relationship, as as you've explained. And, you know, all that stuff you've been discovering is, is very far away from most folks. You know, I mean, that's how, you know, that's how food is grown, but then it's how it's distributed and marketed and all those, you know, many ways we've been we've been quite separated from from all that uh, industrial process and there's something i think so interesting about this which is also 
you know, like you say, it's not a banging people over the head education. It's a kind of involving people in these new systems. And, and through that, everyone is kind of learning and is able then to make better decisions, not just for their own health and families and communities, but also, you know, yeah, for this extraordinary living world that's essential for, for all our future. So something really interesting, I think, about this where you're you're looking at it because, again, it sort of goes against, I'm guessing, you know, to have these different parts of the system sort of working together. Um, and you talk a little bit as well about, I mean, it's fascinating to me, you know, I've been sort of geeking out on sourdough probably about 10 years. I've been trying to sort of practice my own my own baking, you know, and I'm, I'm fascinated with bread and always have been. And you know, I became type 1 diabetic actually about 20 odd years ago. And that was that was like a big shift for me in trying to understand, you know, what, what was going into me and all that kind of stuff and, and got really into bread, you know, and I'm still always learning every time trying to make the stuff. Um, but um, I guess I was also really fascinated by flour, you know, and also the fact that, you know, my understanding again, that good organic flour cultivated in these ways, but also how it was milled, like, you know, what was what was left in it you know there is this extraordinary nutrition in wheat when it hasn't really been meddled with through the through the milling process as well that's that's right yeah and uh, of course in modern bread production at least in my understanding so much of that goodness and, and nutrition has been has been stripped out you know the 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 milling piece is is pretty key as pretty key as well right as uh, as far as i uh, as far as i can tell it is absolutely yeah absolutely key and uh yeah i mean it's funny that you know a lot of uh uh food talk um you know uh, like if you people talk about organic foods um the, you know the the conversation tends to be around yeah well it hasn't got pesticides or herbicides so a, we talk an awful lot about what isn't in our food and we need to talk a lot more about what 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 is or should be uh, and and part of that, of course, is 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 the functioning soil web, and part of it, as you say, with this te- in in the case of wheat, a massive part of it is the milling process, for the for the simple reason that when you take uh, wheat grains or any cereal grain and grind them between two stones, you keep all elements of the of the grain in there, and even if you filter out a little bit of the coarser bran to have a have a, a slightly whiter flour or more open crumb in your bread or whatever you've nevertheless got all of the uh, of the uh, elements of the grain in there including the the germ uh, which is where all the essential oils are and um, when we switched to industrial roller milling which was a sort of faster and, and uh, in in financial terms a more efficient process one of the consequences of that was that the the germ, gets separated out and so um and was actually i think sold off for, for animal feed ironically uh, because by doing that that means that the flour will will never go off uh, and so that's the flour that i grew up on where you know mum makes a cake uh puts it back in the cupboard and six months later you make another cake and and, and it hasn't moved or, or, or been touched you know partly because i think the any sort of local mice would have understood that they're nutritionally better off eating the packet than they are eating the flour <laughs> <laughs> brilliant yeah but that's but that's nuts isn't it i mean again as you know as i say that's been that's been my thing and in actually good bread you know and you know i've been a a, a ship to mill fan for years although you know obviously now switched to wild farm grain obviously but um you know what i've also discovered is yeah yeah just as a 
as a real staple diet, just how good everything from from gut health to, to physical health to all kinds of stuff from, from eating, you know, effectively just a very good, simple product that's being produced with the wholeness of the ingredient and just how, you know, how transformative that's been, you know, which is which is mad. You know, you think, you know, it's such a simple thing, bread, right, in its in its form, but it can actually deliver so much of what's needed. But, you know, that's been at least you know, my sort of sense is that so much of that has been lost in these industrial processes and, and ways of creating things for speed and efficiency, you know, and I still have, you know, peers and friends who you get quite, quite sort of astounded by the nutritional quality of, you know, bread that's been made with, you know, flours like this, you know, um, it is. I mean, it is a superfood if it's done right, you know, and, and, and if, the, if, if you've got good grains, well milled and well fermented is it, it's a superfood and it, it wasn't chosen as the as the staff of life by chance you know and right. uh, if you think that you know what what happened for for most of bread's life is that you would take your grains to the to the to the local mill when you had your your slot and um and you'd go straight from there to to use the village bread oven so you basically had freshly milled um uh, you know, nutritionally sparkling flour that, that would then be fermented and, uh, and cooked straight away. And I think you could probably do a very, very um, indicative experiment when you think that, you know, prisoners back in the day, obviously I'm not saying they were having a laugh or anything, but they were on bread and water and they were on bread and water for months and they stayed alive. Mm. And uh, I think if you try to repeat that experiment with, with a supermarket loaf, I don't think it lasts very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, no, it's it's extraordinary. And um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, you've 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 now got the farm in in France, but you're now working um, with different folks using this approach, the wild farm grain method, um, in, in lots of other places now, right, including England. Can you can you just tell us a bit about that? How is that unfolding? Where are you? What's that been like um, working with different folks and bringing this approach into it? Yeah, well, to be, to be honest, it's, it's been a total whirlwind because um, uh, on the one hand, um, I've been going around seeing lots of farmers, which has been a great privilege and fascinating conversations with people. And um, and that's been really interesting, the sheer range of, of conversations. But overall, having a message which is that we've set up this thing which rewards you for the quality of the soil and ecosystems in which you you grow things. So instead of chasing every last ton, um, you know you you can move the dial now and and, and start growing in a way uh, which which produces nutrient dense food. You know that's um, that that creation of that value chain uh, is has been a real kind of source of uh, inspiration to lots of people that I've met. And it's obviously been a great pr privilege for me to be the person who's brought that, that message. So that I've had lots mm. of uh, conversations with farmers, which has been great. And, you know, so many people have great ideas as to different ways to get to the same objective that, that we're trying to get to. And I was thinking, yeah, I was going to build this or that piece of equipment to do, to do a version of what you're saying, but I didn't bother doing it because the wheat that came out of that system wasn't going to be worth any more than any other system. So there's no point, and now there is. So, you know, 
so there's all these very uh, inspirational conversations going on with, with with lots of other farmers at the same time much more in hope than expectation i applied for um, uh, a national trust farm because it was increasingly clear that i needed to be uh, in the uk and um, and in the heart of all this incredible sort of goodwill and movement that's happening and to my absolute astonishment in uh, what was a fairly competitive race um, I was the one that was plucked out of the hat so we're now kind of trying to work out how we move back from France and deal with all the family implications of coming back to the UK to, to take over this national trust farm and um, where's that where's yeah. that where's that going to be it's down um it's in warwickshire but it's kind of just underneath the cotswolds heading towards swindon okay so so uh yeah pretty pretty well placed for for people to come not far from to. me i shall come and visit well there you go mate your flower supplies are are, are sorted it's getting closer it's getting more and more local <laughs> yeah fantastic so I'd, I'd love to know a bit more about like you know what is you know just as a question you know you're talking about these other farmers i'm i'm curious about what is it that's well you know maybe it's it's many things but what are other farmers and and landowners when they're reaching out or when you're you know when you're connecting with them what's what's sort of piquing their curiosity what are what are the things that are driving their desire to look at this methodology it depends you know some people are a long way down the road um and you know be farming far longer than i have and uh, and have had had gone through similar processes and come to a similar conclusion that actually uh, this constant living understory um uh plants in my case you know diverse pastures some people are working with clovers or whatever uh, is kind of the holy grail and um and i've been trying all kinds of things to get to that point and just needed this sort of value chain to to motivate them to to push it to the end mm -hmm. that's but but other conversations probably more frequent uh are people um because there's an awful lot of chat about regenerative farming now mm -hmm. it's all over the place and um a lot of it when you when you start it it, people start talking about you know you've got to put cover crops in there with lots of different species of cover crops that so you need to do by cropping in other words rather than growing wheat you grow wheat and beans together for example that so you need more crops in your rotation so start growing like buckwheat or lentils or whatever it is basically diversity mm. is the thing and uh, from someone who's been maybe doing like rapeseed and 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 wheat uh for, for years and years that that's quite intimidating and there's a lot to get your head around and there's a lot of very expensive seed and all kinds of stuff to sort out there you know and so uh in, in our method we could say well look all the diversity piece we're going to tick that box with these uh permanent perennial pasture strips and alongside that we can then concentrate on cultivating, you know, wheat, oats and peas or something, you know, something which feels much more accessible. So on that end of the spectrum, it's it's just trying to do what the wild farm thing on the farming side is all about. Say, look, you know, uh, we, we, we can help you take this step into uh, a regenerative future in a way which is easy. Uh, and, uh, and and which doesn't require a load of capital outlay, and hopefully through that, speed up the process a bit. Yeah, and then, you, you know, you mentioned things like like buckwheat, and you know, I've been getting really into um, 
buckwheat and uh, millet this year for like um for porridge um and i'll say i'm i'm a diabetic and it's quite interesting i've been looking at um, different plant fats and and what they do to blood sugars and even high fat content in plant grains can have um an impact on on insulin can actually make um insulin not as effective um so yeah so i've been um looking at things like millet and you know millet and buckwheat they're they're amazing you can make these amazing porridges out of um at least well at least i found them compared to oats not that i've got a problem with oats but uh, it's just that there is um there's more fat content in oats and um i was looking at where where these grains are coming from the ones i've been buying all, all seem to be grown in in holland um but it feels like again that you know these other grains you know and Again, I guess it's that point of diversity. We probably need way more diversity in terms of the grains and and the plants that we're consuming. But it's 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 interesting that there are these combinations that you know that you're speaking to, and 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 it feels again in my sense that you know people are sort of I don't know. I think there's there's much more possibility that in widening what we what we cultivate and eat. Um, you know, we've had almost a sort of a monoculture. You know, even, you know, even when you look at something like um porridge we've always been told you know it's oats it's oats you know yeah <laughs> actually there's, yeah. there's all these other amazing grains that can also do exactly what you need and what you're looking for so yeah i think it's a really interesting time just just from a diet perspective as well i think um sort of folks i think man, many folks are you know waking up i guess to trying other things and uh, i guess also you know you're you're coming to the UK now, but again, you know, one thing I'm always thinking about is, yeah, you know, how do we, how do we create more food security? You know, I mean, you know, I grow, I grow vegetables, right. But like nothing like at the scale that you would have grown them, but you know, I grow veg, you know, every year. And like the last couple of months, the weather has been so crazy and difficult to grow. And you just think, God, my patch is looking compared to what it should be like at, you know, at the moment, it's like all over the shop. And, so I guess, you know, it makes me jump to to not, you know, just to, you know, like food security and how do we build these more resilient food systems, you know, and we're eating things that are actually, you know, made for these lands, I guess. And so you, you know, you sensing and seeing these sort of developments from uh, from farmers as well right now, now that you're talking to them. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a very, there's a, there's a, if a bit like feels like a bit like dance music uh, post Castle Morton, you know, there's a very significant <laughs> underground going on, and yeah, uh, yeah. No, a, and that will that will break through you know, for for Love sure. Um, and I think you know it's in terms of the what you're saying about all the lovely sort of diversity of diet that we've we've lost, and some of which when I get time I sort of try and get back through foraging and stuff. But yeah. you know, it, it's about finding ways. You know, within the the wild farm system, obviously trees and putting trees back and hedges back is kind of that's a that's a uh, a given. But beyond that, within and then he, he sort of occasionally run up against sometimes practical but mainly bureaucratic barriers. But it's about making there's so much space in a in a in a farm system and so many niche opportunities for uh, you know significant amounts of leaves and vegetables and nuts and fruits mm, and yeah. all kinds of stuff and and it's just making that work mm. in a way which is which is doable practical uh, and and unfortunately that 
passes muster with all the innumerable rules and regulations that surround our fields. Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting as well. I I, I love that sort of the underground farming movement because it do, does feel like there's a lot of experimenting going on, and also I guess you know, you know, younger generations as well that are looking to the land. Like, and I guess that's a that's a big question of of access. You know, how how do we open up more space for for more experimentation? You know. Um, maybe to to be going on within this within this diversity because i guess you know you've got like you know like you say conventional farmers uh farmers who you know who've maybe been farming you know their their entire lives and uh, and i guess there's a lot of you know it's quite a big step as well to step into this more unknown way of doing things um but then you've also got these these younger generations right coming through and i guess you know who haven't got any of this kind of ingrained behavior or this old system so it's also like yeah how do we create diversity i guess in who can actually access the land and start to grow this whole movement yeah no i think i think that's right and uh, i think that's something that like certainly george um one of my partners in wildfire mm. grain he's 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 tackling the whole school thing so he's he's set up a thing called grow which is operating at for the moment at an academy in, in, in tottenham oh, yeah, North London. Uh, and yeah and he's just doing amazing things you know just getting all, all the food in the canteen the kids are growing it themselves and, and but it's also a very holistic thing because as you know all these things are linked so he's getting to do some mindfulness and some um uh, and some physical activity and you know observing of nature and all this you know and I, I think that you know through through things that it feels that that stuff is 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 being at least talked about and started to happen in a way which just didn't exist relatively few years ago. And um, I think you know we've got to hope that one of the one of the positive sides of the technology which surrounds us, I think, is the possibility for exponential change. And we just need to make sure the next one, the graph goes off in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the whole thing, isn't it? There's this, you know, there's this sort of narrative of jobs, you know, and things, but actually, you know, because we've been on this sort of efficiency technology, you know, man dominates nature controlling story for however many hundred years. And we've, we've reached the pinnacle of it and it's all starting to collapse, but there's this idea of like, well, actually, you know, so many people could go back or onto the land or for the first time onto the land. And I, and I guess it also feels like this method requires or, or to scale it would require way more people on the land. Um, but like you say, not necessarily having to have, you know, access to huge kind of um, plots, but actually being able to cultivate, you know, smaller things and more diverse. So you're bringing different types of skill sets into play. But, you know, there could be, this extraordinary way of um, of more people, you know, finding um, a purpose, I guess, which also in many ways can start to tackle all these things that you're saying, um, you know, like George is looking at, whether it's mental health or connection to uh, to community. There's there's so much possibility, I think, through these kinds of approaches, which are, you know, often not again. The narrative will say, "Oh, we've got to give people jobs. We want to keep growing these things," but actually, there is. There is this thing, isn't it? It's a bit like that sort of cathedral thinking. You, you know what I mean? It's like if we're going to build these new types of systems, it's actually going to require loads of people and, and less machines. You know, it's more about 
you know, do we value this? Do we actually decide that's what we want to be doing as a culture? Exactly. And I think that I think that sense of purpose is 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 key, you know, and it's kind of quite interesting thing, you know, that comes up with some of the the, the older kids who, who come to the farm here and I do a little slideshow to show pictures of my trials and tribulations and uh, over the years uh, and, and I start off with a with a slide from a gig we did on the other stage on Glastonbury the closing slot on a Sunday and we had so many lasers that the uh, the pilots landing at Heathrow um, sent a message to Glastonbury telling us to turn the lasers down so um, it was, it's a great picture oh. <laughs> and it's all kids going love up. that one <laughs> Yeah, it's all going off, and, and it, but it's quite interesting, you know, in, um, in terms of like the rules of the game, as you just described. I, I was considered to be someone who like had won, you know. In, in to, you know, I was on stage, I had enough money to do what I wanted to do. You know, life was good, uh, and so and so it's like, why on earth have you have you jacked all that in? to be chasing around after some escaped cows at three o'clock in the morning. I mean, obviously that's not what I did it for, but that, you know, you, you know, you get the, the general idea what on earth have you done? Uh, and that gets people's attention. Yeah. And actually uh, that sense of, uh, I, you know, I don't regret doing the music. It's been, it has been amazing. And I would encourage anyone to do the same thing, but, um, but the sense of purpose, you know, like when you get up in the morning and you do hard physical work, that's part of a plan that you thought about that you think is important there is no better or happier way to spend a day than that. Mm. And that's something that just gets so often overlooked in, in this sort of um, age of of a lot of kind of very superficial pleasure that's quick to come and quick to go. Mm. Yeah, I know. That's um, that's amazing. I love that. And I, and I think that's exactly, you know, you sort of living that and and sharing that story i guess particularly to youngsters is is such a great thing because you know we're in this you know we've been in this culture of of sort of you know productivity accumulation you know all equals success you know and yet actually you know as we're increasingly realizing um it's really about our own kind of you know inner health and well-being and the health and well-being of life around us that's that's really what 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 we should be maybe measuring success that's what it's about and through participating in something which is you know building towards that is a whole different way of 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 showing up in the world it is so interesting and uh i guess on that andy just one thing i wanted to ask you did i get this right but did you receive a sort of um french equivalent of uh, sort of farming knighthood did that be right? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. I'm you're, you're technically speaking to a chevalier, which is a, a, a yeah a French a French knight. Believe it or not, doesn't sound like one. I know. Amazing, amazing. So, like, yeah, this approach that you've uh, you've obviously taken, I guess it must have uh, raised a few eyebrows when you were embarking on this. But then, yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about you know how that's netted out in France? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it definitely raised raised a few eyebrows, um, but you know, I think well, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, the, the the thing with the farming community is that whether you're, however you're all tackling the the, the problem, and, and you know, there's a lot of people still uh, friends of mine right here at the absolutely opposite end of the spectrum. But there's definitely a sense of shared struggle and community. Like you know, you're embarked on a task which is which is important and it's tough. 
and um, and the sense of kind of mutual support amongst all that is a lovely thing to be part of. And despite all the times when the, you know it's like the Englishman. We thought he'd gone mad, but now he started using horses to farm with. He's properly lost it, you know. I mean, there must have been a lot of those chats. Mm. Uh, but, but nevertheless, when you're in the shit and you make a phone call, they're round in a flash, you know. And that's and that's that's really nice. And um, but the the, uh, the the knighthood caper was was actually, to be fair, for a politician, Stefan de Fol was. He was the French agriculture minister, and he tried to do. A lot of good things, you know, in the context of what's achievable in those positions. Yeah, uh, he I've had seen this. Him, I think. Would I? Would I've seen him in a few docs? He's like on some of the climate change sort of docs. Uh, yeah, that's right. Because he launched this thing, this thing called Cap uh, Mil. Uh, so, like, um, the idea that a 0.4 percent increase in soil carbon each year um, could keep cl- climate change right. to within the two two degree threshold kind of thing but he really went for it you know and continues to be an activist in that field um since leaving office so i had the good fortune to be making some bread and then francois Hollande came down to our local town and i was the one who ended up turning it with a loaf and i ended up having lunch with francois on some of his cabinet and then he was to said to to Le Folle that there's Englishmen making a decent loaf or something and <laughs> before you knew it <laughs> Brilliant. i was in paris with my best suit on amazing yeah, I, 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 it's funny, you know, do you know what? I actually won uh, in my, uh, in, in Bath here, we had a, a local um, uh, bake-off, Whitcomb bake-off, which I won with my sourdough. And uh, 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 the judge was uh, um, uh, uh, Richard uh, Bertinet, who's um, who's a baker here in Bath and uh, wow. beyond. And uh, he's also a Frenchman. And he, uh, he when he gave me the award, he said to everyone, he said, uh, this guy's bread could uh, do very well in a bakery anywhere in this city, uh, which I was uh, quite uh, quite proud of. Uh, <laughs> nice work. <laughs> exactly. And um, I guess that's the other thing. You know, when we talk about climate, when we talk about soils is is how much carbon is 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 released right into into the atmosphere through through this kind of turning over this plowing of uh of soils right and digging and and, and stuff and again there's this sort of countercultural thing isn't it that we don't quite grasp and um there's that great thing was it in um the film kiss the ground they did that sort of speed up satellite imaging of the world oh it's brilliant yeah yeah you know, and I guess that's the thing, you know, I always think, you know, are other farmers, you know, really grasping that there's this sort of, I guess, interesting tension, like you say, between your livelihood and producing and being able to kind of sort sort of survive. And then this kind of longer term, you know, bigger issue of climate. Yeah. And yeah. the future. Um, yeah. What's what's going on? Now, it is, and it's kind of crazy that you know we've created a system that juxtaposes those two things, and that in itself is proof enough that the system isn't working. Um, and, and you know, the carbon thing is 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 tough because there's a lot of chat about that and creating carbon markets and incentivizing farmers to put carbon in the soil um, because you know the potential of that is huge. And when, when people think of sequestering carbon, they tend to think about trees, right? Um, but uh, the thing with trees is that they store their carbon above ground where it can be chopped down or it can burn down, whereas um, well-managed grasslands or, or, or agricultural lands, they store their carbon below ground where you have the potential to make it stable over very, very long timescales. 
uh, and uh, actually, you know, the potential of, of grassland to sequester carbon often exceeds that of forests, you know. So uh, it, it, you've got 70% of, just talking about the UK, which is obviously a postage stamp, but, you know, 70% of the UK is agricultural land. It's an ecosystem which is re-engineered twice a year, you know. And so uh, there's a, an enormous opportunity there. We're, we're already changing this landscape twice a year already. So we can change that very quickly in a way which will make a very, very significant difference to uh, to the to the carbon situation. But in terms of like the finances, that is hard because it's it's carbon cycling is complicated. Mm. It's very, very hard to 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 measure. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, coming up with a sort of definitive price per ton uh, is going to be is going to be hard, I think. And I think we have to take a more a more holistic approach to um, to just creating putting value on things that are important and there's nothing more important than the state of our food and the state of our ecosystems because ultimately that's the state of ourselves yeah right 100 percent um so you've got the new farm coming in the uk um you've got obviously other farms that you're working with and and landowners um what does the next few years look like in terms of you know you've obviously got this real emerging interest now in in the methodology but yeah what's what's coming up for you now how do you how do you keep on top of what feels like is accelerating quite quite fast yeah no i mean it's uh, it is it is a bit full on the moment uh, you know sort of emigrating uh, in times of of quarantine travel is is a is a unnecessary icing on the cake really but um, we'll, we'll get through it but yeah i mean basically mm. it's um you know building building communities it's the most important thing and um and then i've got various ideas as to how i can improve uh the the farming technique which i'm very excited about and um we're also as wild farm working with a couple of quite significant landowners um for whom we're going to be managing some large areas from this autumn um and their areas where there's been very intensive farming going on so i think there's a huge potential there just to show how mm. how quick just to do what has happened in france and just show how quickly these things can become a real oasis in the desert and um uh yeah uh, I, I think that the zeitgeist feels like it's 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 with us in the same way that it did for for, uh, for sasha at shelley's in 1992 <laughs> <laughs> yeah brilliant and he's still going. Yeah, yeah he's still going, exactly. <laughs> and uh, exactly. I'll still follow him on Instagram. I'll still listen to his mix. It's amazing. So thinking about um, folks out there who want to connect with the Wild Farm Grain mission, what's the best way to um, to, to join in and, um, and get involved? Well, I think that the, you know, fundamentally uh, every, every bag of flour that goes out the door uh is on the one end is is another farmer who we can go to and say do this and you'll get properly paid for it and so whether that's uh you know um bakers or or home cooks or people uh you know making their morning muffins or whatever you know it's um uh, and you know it's not we, we, we're not in a position where this, where it's available everywhere yet, but I would just say that if you're interested in the story and you want to get involved, we're trying to build a community here. So send an email to info at wildfarmgrain.com. 
let us know what you're up to and um and, and we'll we'll work together on it in what, whatever capacity that might be amazing well i i can uh you know i can speak for the flower you know i've been using it um for a couple of months and i love it and it tastes gorgeous and you know i've just done my first big uh bulk order now so that's it uh I'm uh, I'm converted. Yeah. This household is now uh, wild farmed grain officially. No, I think it's amazing, Andy. I, I absolutely love um, what you're doing, and I think you're right. It's such an interesting time to sort of you know pull all these threads around uh, that you're doing with this approach, and it's making me think as well. Like, um, how does this methodology? You know, it sort of feels like it could work on all kinds of other areas of our sort of plant-based food system as well, right? Um, these kind of relationships that you're that you're um, developing between, you know, customer, grower, and all, all these folks in between, and obviously the land itself. Um, but yeah, it just feels like this approach could, could travel, you know, beyond the grain as well, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Beyond, beyond, beyond the grain is actually, um, is, is a title of another brilliant book on the, on the, uh, on the story of wheat, if you're if you're if you're a wheat fanatic, I, that's another one to recommend. What's that one called? It's called. Oh no, it's not called Beyond the Grain. It's called Against the Grain. Absolutely nice. fascinating history of of civilization and and our relationship to uh, to staple cereal crops. Which doesn't it, actually that sounds like a really boring introduction to a book, <laughs> but it's actually great. <laughs> I sold them a bit short there. It is, it is a page turner in, in, in a kind of farming kind of way. Yeah, so good. Um, so one last question, Andy, that's come up for me, I wanted to ask you is what you've seen through, I guess, the the relationship with biodiversity and the wider natural world. You know, what have you really witnessed how that whole system has been impacted through your methodology and approach? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's spectacular. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, one of the th- things that I like to do with the with the younger farm visitors is that luckily just down the end of the drive there's a farm, um, organic farm actually, but where where it's, they're, they're growing uh, soybeans and wheat uh, in a in a sort of you know plough based setting, and. Um, uh, and the, yeah, the soils down here are knackered, you know, uh, as described at the beginning. And so when when the when the uh, the kids go, I, I I say right, who who here is a vegetarian or a vegan? And I was vegetarian for twenty five years, so I'm fine with it. But uh, it, uh, quite a few hand, hands go up these days. I'm like right, well, the most vegan thing you can eat is one hundred percent grass fed beef from a mob grazed herd which creates uproar as you could imagine <laughs> and uh, and so then the, the the next bit is say right you know here's some spades go down to that field down there where the soybeans are or the wheat depending on the time of year the neighbor's field and anyone who can find a worm they got free run on the pan au chocolat in the bakery and uh, so everyone goes down there you know scrabbling around and uh, and no one can find a worm ever I've never lost that bet I said okay forget the worm Go that's down and find field, it, right? Yeah, this, yeah, this that's is on the, the, the conventional, yeah, right. Yeah, on the conventionally farmed field, and so and then okay, forget the worm. Go and find anything that moves, and generally, I don't lose that bet either. And then we go into the the pastures, uh, and it's just humming. I mean, you can literally hear it humming, and there are birds all over the place. And you put your spade in the ground, 
and um, and it and it's full of worms and and all kinds of other visible life. Never mind the invisible life. And this is soil that's still got a long way to go. You know, it's a long process. But ten years ago, this was the soil down there at the end of the drive. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was vegetarian for twenty five years. I've got slightly off topic here, but but my my, my point is that in terms of like restoring ecosystems and biodiversity uh, i think the symbiosis between between grass and grass eaters has a capacity to to turn things around at a speed in the overall picture of life um it means that I, i'm i'm convinced that a small amount of 100 grass-fed um uh, meat of some or whatever description uh is is a is a price that's worth paying uh, for overall biodiversity restoration. Yeah, and it's, it's such an interesting one, isn't it? Because again, in, in our sort of binary world, people tend to go, oh no, but you can't eat animals, you've got to be vegan. But again, what you're saying is we need to, we need diversity. It's all about these relationships that uh, that exist. Um, it's all about relationships and communities, exactly. Soil, soil human and ecological. Yeah, I was listening to this. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but this story recently about a um, a dairy farm that was now uh, experimenting with um, with oat production, uh, still using his herd, but you know he downsized uh, the size of the herd significantly. Um, and you know it sounded like similar sort of approach to yourself. This relationship between you know mob grazing, moving the herd across the landscape. Uh, and then they're, you know, creating an, an oat plant dairy on the farm, um, which was fascinating. And then having some some beef at the end of the year as well. But like you say, the beef is almost a byproduct. Yeah. Um, you know, the beef is actually just a byproduct of, of this process of bringing this life back. Well, that's exactly the same. The, the beef at my place is, is a byproduct of, uh, of, of soil life restoration. That's really interesting. I'd be interested to know where that place was, actually. Yeah, I'll... Um, I'll I'll dig it out. I can't remember whether I heard it, but I'll uh, I'll dig it out. But this is what's so fascinating, I think, um, about this stuff. It's there's this sort of beautiful sort of complexity that sort of goes against this dominant narrative that you know we have. You know where everyone shouts, "Oh, you can't eat meat!" And actually, yeah, there's this really interesting sort of need for these relationships and these communities of life to um, to exist uh, together. Here's of that. Amazing. Listen, Andy, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, totally love what you're doing and, you know, really, really looking forward to seeing how it all develops here in the UK and we'll be looking out for that and I'll link to all the stuff you've talked about and point people to Wild Farm Grain and, uh, yeah, just kind of, um, you know, massive vibes to you for it all. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah, no, it's been it's been been great to to, to talk it talk it through. Two survivors from a previous era, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Still alive, vaguely making a living. Uh, it's all good. Uh, so, listen, I always um, I always close the show with the with the the metaphor of the spaceship Earth and this idea of like um, you know becoming crew, more of us becoming crew on the spaceship Earth. I was just curious about what that might uh, what that might speak to you right now uh, in 2021. 
yeah, I was meant to think about this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I mean, uh, basically, it would be it would be something on the lines of that for for a very long time now. We've been passengers watching various versions of kings and queens fighting it out uh, for control of the ship and uh, throwing us various distractions down the back end, of which there are more and more and more to keep us quiet. And we got to put those distractions down and uh, and by becoming crew in sufficient numbers, just to say that's enough guys, we're taking over the controls of this thing. And I think in doing that, if we all swear our, an oath of allegiance, which is along the lines of anything that we do to this spaceship, we do to ourselves, then we won't go far wrong. Beautiful. Love that. Listen, Andy, thanks so much for this uh, and for the time. Uh, masses of positive vibes to you and the Wild Farm Grain crew and what you're doing. And uh, yeah, I'll be right alongside the mission, spreading the good word via my loaves uh, here in uh, here in Bath, and uh, look forward to uh, <laughs> look forward to connecting when you're settled into the new farm. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a shout, mate. Come on over. Yeah, I'd love that. Nice one, Andy. All right, thanks, mate. Have a nice evening. Be in touch. So I hope you enjoyed that one. What an incredible uh, human Andy Cato is. Um, do check out Wild Farm Grain in the links in the show notes um, and get supporting this system. Uh, the flower rocks, by the way. Um, so uh, yeah, get involved. Um, if you like this podcast, please give us a review. It will take 60 seconds max and it will help other people find the podcast or just share it with anyone that you think will like it. It'll be much appreciated. Um, you can sign up to the monthly newsletter, Becoming Crew. You can follow us on Instagram, uh, which is at the spaceship.earth. You can leave us a donation or a price of a cuppa if you like an episode. You can do all of that via the website, the spaceship.earth. Okay, I'm going to play out with a track, obviously. Um, this is a new track from Sasha. Yep, Sasha is still going and going strong, in my opinion. Um, it's a track called Corner Shop. It's from his uh, Luzo Skura project and album, which I heartily recommend. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Um, take it easy out there. Until next time, peace and out. Mm-hmm.